Shut up and sit down. Welcome to the Edu Third Space podcast, where we address the important questions what is education? Where does it occur? And who gets to decide? Hello, listeners, and thank you for joining me. Today, I'm speaking with Will Roosh about his experiences working in each of the three primary models of K-12 schooling in the U.S., traditional public schools, charter schools, and private schools. We also talk about viewpoint diversity in the education sector and the role of parents and families in formal schooling. Will is a high school teacher in L.A. and the host of the Cylinder Radio podcast. Will and I co-moderate the Heterodox Academy community focused on K-12 education, which is a platform for people working in the education sector to share ideas to support and promote heterodoxy. I'll include a link to that website in the show notes, as well as a link to Will's podcast. As always, if you haven't already done so, please subscribe to this podcast and leave us a review so that other people can find us. And donate to the podcast to keep the conversations going by visiting the website. The website is included in the show notes. During this conversation, you might hear my 15-year-old chihuahua whining to get on my lap. He will likely make several guest appearances on this podcast. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Will. Hi, Will. Hi. Thanks for having me on. (laughs) Great. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, so basically, um, we're just going to start, if you can give kind of a brief history of your experience working in the field of education up to this point. Yeah, so uh, I went to Penn State in Pennsylvania, and I did um, two different student teaching practicums, one in Altoona and then one in Philadelphia, and those were at very traditional mainstream type schools with, with that had, you know, 500 kids per grade and just was like, you know, typical school, the kind of school that I went to. And then I moved out to California and couldn't get a job at like a LAUSD school. So I took whoever would hire me. And that was a small charter school in the Valley in Granada Hills, California. And it was just modules. It was like a trailer park. I was like, what is this place? Um, But it turned out to be a pretty cool um, spot, uh, kind of like a, a place for rejected toys almost. Or what's that? What's that? Like the you know, oh, misfits! Yeah, it's, it misfit like island that. or whatever. Yeah, it really was, and I was in there too because I was new and I didn't know what I was doing. But it gave me a lot of freedom and stuff like that. And then I went to a different charter for a year that was a Bill Melinda Gates funded um, school in a really pa- bad part of of like East LA for a year. And then I left that and went to a religious private school. And I've been at the religious private school now for about six or seven years. And, um, and that's where I'm, I'm at. Awesome. And just to clarify, so the Bill and Melinda Gates School, was that one of their small schools? It was, um, it was an alliance school, mm. the, with like the, uh, the, the charter name. Uh, they got funding from them, but there was, there was a bunch of different funders. They were trying to look for the ideal urban school model. So I was going into it. I was really optimistic. I was super excited about it, but it was a failure. And actually the school ended up failing. Uh, after after I left. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, we might. Uh, I'm probably going to come back to that. Yeah, um, sure. But first, so the kind of three primary questions of this podcast is, uh, what is education? Where does it occur? And who gets to decide? So in each podcast, we're not going to necessarily address all of those questions. That's certainly not an expectation on you. But um, one thing I do want to ask all of the um, 
interviewees is how do you define education? I think, again, maybe because of like the way that I got educated, so to speak, is I think education is just learning about how to navigate through life. And I don't think it necessarily has to take place in the classroom because most of my teachers, like using air quotes, were not school teachers. They were friends and coworkers and mentors and, and people like that. It wasn't school teachers. So I, I think education is just, is just, yeah, how to navigate through life and, um, and do that well. And that could be through, you know, just specific curriculum or, or, you know, addition, subtraction, reading, whatever, or it could be emotional intelligence and, and, you know, learning about intimacy and, and, and loyalty and all that, those kinds of things. So that's, yeah, I guess it's, I, I think of it in terms of bigger than just school. Yeah. Okay. Um, so because you are a school teacher, then how do you bring that idea of education into the classroom, this like broader idea of helping your students navigate through life? Um, so a couple of things. One thing that I started doing maybe about five years ago is, and this is probably weird for, for some people listening, but I, I, the first day of school, I passed around a big calendar and I have each student sign a day and I have lunch with that student on that day. So I have lunch with a different kid every day throughout the year. And it, the math actually works out where it, it takes me from beginning of September till June. Every day I have lunch with a different students. So I get to know them personally. It gives me a good, they see that I have buy-in to them as a person. And then also it helps me to have like a, a hook for them about what kind of makes them tick. And then what are they looking for? And then how I can relate that in the classroom. So that's like one example, but just throughout, I'm always thinking, so I teach like US history, it was one of the classes I teach, I'm always thinking, why is this information going to help a 16 year old this week? So it's like, it's like, it's direct. It's not just, you know, if we're teaching Battle of Trenton or something in Revolutionary War, it's, I don't care, you know, what would the name of the general was, you can Google that. But what I do care about is how do you overcome you know, um, odd, when the odds are, are stacked against you. If you're an underdog, how can you, you know, win in some sort of battle? And that could be in a, your basketball game at the park then this weekend, or that could be really in anything. How could you get, you know, whatever, the pretty girl when you're not, you know, in, in her like social class or whatever it is. Like there's all these different ways that I try to take the, the, the lessons of history and apply it to their life. So I'm always thinking through that lens because that's the way that I learned, I suppose. Okay, okay. So if that's the way you learned, have you always thought about education in this way or kind of has it evolved over time? Yeah, I didn't, I've been asked, because I've been doing this for, you know, for like 15 years, I've been asked a lot, like, you know, what, why did you become a teacher? Mm -hmm. And I never had a good answer for it because I didn't like school. A lot of teachers were good at school. They liked school, so they want to stay in school. And I wasn't. And I finally figured it out like this year, what it is, is school for lack of a better term school sucked for me like the i like the social elements of it but the, the i don't remember my classes a whole i don't remember my teachers or anything like that and it, yet i love learning i didn't read much but now i read all the time like I, because i read things that i enjoy so i think that there's i just see this huge disconnect between learning education you know as you first asked and then school there was just this big there was a wide gap there and 
I just think that 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 can't be it shouldn't be that wide and it can't be that hard to just make school a little bit more functional. So I think that's why I went into it. So that's the way. Yeah, I think that's from the very beginning. It was always about how learning whatever, you know, whether it's government or economics or sociology or history or whatever, how this is going to help you today, because that's all I cared about in high school is how is this going to help me? And if that isn't translated by the teacher, then, then I think your, your job's going to be really, really hard. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, so I never liked school either, which, you know, when I tell people that it's hilarious because I'm now getting my PhD, but I do love learning. I love talking about ideas and, you know, being, like you said, the social element, you know, could be social as in friends, whatnot, but also the ability to talk to people, talk through your ideas and things like that. So I think that's so fascinating and kind of maybe points to a reason that you and I connect and, you know, work well together on our Heterodox Academy um, platform. But so with that in mind, you know, as someone who works in a school of education, um, most people who become teachers love school. And so they basically try to replicate or maybe not even try. They may be subconsciously replicating exactly the way they learned and don't understand that students may not resonate not all the students are going to resonate with that so what would a piece of advice as someone who did not like school but is a school teacher what piece of advice would you give to school of ed students yeah I th so someone just when you're talking someone i was talking to a teacher yesterday who is kind of like one of like one of us <laughs> sam who's like you know frustrated with the school system a bit and they said something along the lines of um you know there's a lot of teachers out there who teach who teach the same year 25 times you know for their career they don't they don't change it they just do the same thing over and over and over again so you know for someone who is you know struggle with school but wants to become a teacher like what is it that that turns you on you know like intellectually like what is it why you know how are you going to help these people to figure out the best way to navigate the world get what they want out of it all of that kind of stuff and and there's reasons why we teach algebra world history whatever it is you know like british lit or i don't know whatever classes are being taught like there's a reason why we just have to connect that and the kids don't connect that on their own so i think of our jobs as like just be be a translator you have this this material and you have this kid and a lot of teachers are just going to say here kind of force this material down their throats and then they're going to choke on it because they're just like they're, they're, it's not translated you have to translate it into teenage speak or you know practical language for them like to really connect this is how it's going to help you and i think that's a challenge for some for some um subjects i think it's a challenge for some people who it just comes natural it's like well of course this is going to help you of course well because it's a good exercise for your brain like I don't know if that's gonna work with everybody you know like there's a lot of things that are good exercises for your brain you know that could be maybe more functional so I think um, be, be a translator I think is what I would say mm -hmm. yeah yeah cuz I remember in algebra class in high school um, I mean I was always a pretty like social person but by the time I got to high school I was kind of like just fall into the background and try to make my way through and I remember another student asking our teacher like when am I ever going to use this and I sat there and thought yeah yeah can tell me when I'm going to need this information I want to know too and he just didn't have an answer it was like oh well you know it just helps your brain think a different way I'm like you know when you're talking to 16 year olds that's not going to cut it <laughs>
No, like that's that I really, and I've said this to, to young teachers is like, that should be the number one question, question you answer, like the, before you even walk in the classroom. And, and I tell my students, and it probably gets my colleagues to hate me, but I tell my students all the time, ask that question every day. You can ask that with specific lessons. Ask it to me. If I'm teaching, you know, whatever, like some one thing, prohibition or something like that in the 1920s, like ask me constantly, how is this going to help me? I'm 16 years old. My parents are driving me nuts. You know, my, my boyfriend just broke up with me, whatever it is, like how, help me make this connection. Cause it, it's there. That's the thing is like, like there is a reason why this stuff has been taught for years and years and years. You just kind of miss that, the, the link. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah. We need to ask that for sure. Yeah, and I've, you know, I think I've talked to you um, about this in previous conversations, but it kind of goes with, I think it, the problem becomes everyone has to go to school. That's something, you know, obviously they're homeschooling, whatever their ways that people get around it, but for the most part, everyone has to go to school and everyone does go to school. And so it's almost as if we don't feel like we need to explain or not we, you and I, but like as a field that we don't need to explain anymore what you're going to get out of this because you have to be here. Um, yeah. So that's just a side note, kind of one of my concerns. Well, yeah, you brought that up and I never really heard that articulated as well as you have, um, Samantha, like that, that, and that, that's been like a, a little splinter in my brain since you first brought that up to me is like, that's a good point. Like <clears throat> not even saying that it shouldn't be compulsory, but the, just what are the effects that it is, mm-hmm. right? Like, like, so this is going to affect certain things. It's not saying that we shouldn't have school. It's just like, what are the effects? If we think about it this way, it's going to have ripples in society in certain ways. And, you know, whether that's, you know, parent engagement or what, you know, the stagnant nature of the curriculum or whatever it is. So, yeah, I, mm-hmm. I think that's an idea that, that is not given enough um, attention. Yeah, it's almost as if just because schools don't have to justify their existence, they should be justifying their existence. Yeah, yeah, they don't. Like, if you just even bringing that up, like, when you first said it to me, I was just like, what, is, what are you talking about? <laughs> and I was like, hey, yeah, like, like, if we're in the Heterodox Academy, if we're questioning everything, we're supposed to be people that are questioning things. Why can you not question that? Like, mm-hmm. what, like we're supposed to be thinking outside the box. Like what's, that's pretty outside the box. What would it look like if it, if it wasn't, or what would it look like if it was, you know, not just assumed or something like that. So I think, it, yeah, I, th- I really think there's something to that. And, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. And kind of with that, I mean, you know, you can argue that my premise is incorrect on this, but I see, you know, today we're going to talk a little bit about the three different models. Um, traditional public schools, charter schools, and private schools. And of course, on a side note, there are also uh, magnet schools or other types of selective enrollment schools. But for the most part, they all look the same. You know, so it's still like grades split up by age and you have to get certain letter grades to move on to the next level or certain test score um, results to move on to the next level, um, things of that nature. So um, I think that the reason that stays the same no matter the model is also because it's compulsory and you know because there are standards and things set in place that um, you can't really deviate too much from to be considered a quote-unquote school yeah would you agree with that 
Yeah, I mean, I've heard like, there's like urban legends, but I've had like students, cause especially at like the school that had a bunch of the, the misfit toys. He went to a charter school that I guess had closed down, but it was project-based where he basically learned everything through skating. So we learned math um, was like the geometry of building ramps. And you learned like, you know, the history of, of skating and did reports on that. And then he, you know, wrote, um, you know, used English to write for, some sort of like grants or something like that. Like it was just, and that's outside the box. That's something really incredible, you know, and that has this, that's gonna have its shortcomings too, you know, but I think that you can do a charter or an independent school that is way out there and really experimental and stuff like that. But like anything really out there and experimental and different, if there's not a, a good roadmap for how to do it successfully, it's probably gonna fail. I mean, it's just like any business, you know, most businesses are gonna be franchises are gonna go, oh, I'm gonna be like, just like that restaurant, as opposed to just doing something that's really out there. You know, there are Elon Musk's out there, but it's, it's rare and it's really risky. So I think in order to, I think they do look the same because it's like, well, this works, right? <laughs> like it mm -hmm. seems to work. Okay, well, let's just go with this. So yes, I mean, I've taught a bunch of different schools. I've taught, you know, also like socioeconomic groups, um, ethnically, racially diverse, you know, and it's still, it's chairs, someone in the front, a screen, a whiteboard or a blackboard, like it is, they're all kind of the same. And you can arrange the, the chairs and stuff like that, but it's all pretty much the same. Um, same basic kinds of classes, you know, changes here and there. Culture changes a lot, culture, about like, is it cool to be smart? Is it, is getting an A something you brag about or is it something you're ashamed of, you know, that kind of stuff. But yeah, they look very similar. Right, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, and that's kind of, I guess, the argument um, that often gets made for integration, you know, whether that's racial, ethnic, or socioeconomic is to kind of, mesh kids in an environment where they're all gonna you know succeed together and i think part of the argument is if you put kids in an environment where learning is cool then learning is cool um, if you put kid in an environment where learning is not cool then across the board learning is not cool yeah yeah so what would you say of the different schools that you've worked at the different models like what are the hallmarks that, that sets them apart we kind of talked about they're similar and as far as structure is concerned yeah. but what would set them apart okay so and this is going to get into probably a topic you're going to cover a lot um doing your show is uh, standardized tests and standards in general is really what sets them apart because the traditional big you know um like unified school district type schools. There is a, a focus on, on standardized tests and scores and stuff like that, but it, they're gonna get their funding regardless. Okay, they're just, there's so many kids, they have an abundance of kids, okay? Um, you know, like I taught a, the one, one schools that 48 kids per class. So it's just, there's a lot of funding there. But then at the charter schools, your funding is hinged on those test scores. So it was, a, a major, the biggest focus of the school was getting the kids to do well on their STAR test, their standardized tests, whatever it is, um, so that we see improvement and that they see improvement, we get funding. That is, that is the, the biggest difference. And then when I went to a private school, there were no standards. There's no standards. So it's pot, there's negatives to that for sure, but there's no standards, no standardized tests, anything like that. And funding was there because it's in a wealthy area of, the, of the, the city. So you just have freedom. And I think that that's not good for everybody. 
but you know, to, to have a dog, you know, if you have a greyhound, you, you should probably leash it, you know, but mm -hmm. if you have like a basset hound or a golden retriever, it's probably cool, whatever it is. Like, like you, you unchain me, you know, I'm like all ADHD out and like, I'll just like, <laughs> I'll just go, 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 go. I will work really hard to just like make an awesome class, but I, I'm, I'm self-motivated and, and, and other teachers maybe aren't as in the same way anyway, as I am. So so the big difference that I've, that I've seen is the focus on specific standards where I had to teach, I like the Bill and Melinda Gates school, I had to teach these topics this way. You had to teach in this educational model, but they broke it up into like little groups, it's called like BLAST model. And then um, I had to teach the California state standards. So if a kid said like, hey, can we talk and learn about this a little bit? It's like, nope, don't have time, sorry. Where at the school I'm at now, I can, do, I can teach anything I want. I can write my own classes and things like that. And that's just a huge element of freedom that I think most teachers want is that element of freedom. And I, I think that when people are talking about, you know, what gets teachers to, to, to get out of the industry, that it's the pay. I don't think it's the pay nearly as much as it's the ability to do the job that you want to do. And when you're handcuffed and not able to teach the way that you want to teach or teach what you think is important to teach, I think that what you get is what I was kind of alluding at, which is, you know, you get people who are just like, tell me what to do, tell me how to do it, and I'll just do it. And unfortunately, there are a lot of those teachers out there. But I think the system makes it attracts those types of teachers and gets rid of the ones who want to do their own thing and be creative. Yeah. And, you know, for me, and this might've been the case for you too, um, you know, we were encouraged to be creative in undergrad when we were getting our degrees. Like that was the whole thing, like these lessons that you get to create these unit plans, whatever. And then I enter the classroom and I'm like, well, hold on. Like, this is not, what I signed up for, you know, here's your books, here's what needs to get taught every week. Both you and I were entering the field right after No Child Left Behind was introduced, um, but I still see that today in schools of ed. They're being sold these ideas that are not going to play out for them if they especially end up in a district where the test scores are low, and that needs to be the focus. Yeah, you and I are, are, are sharing, we, we commiserate over, like, why are so <clears throat> many K-12 through teachers not lifelong learners, not questioning, you know, a lot of things that are being pushed policy wise and stuff like that. And then when you break down that way, it's like, well, of course, because they've been, you know, do this curriculum, here's your book, here's your teacher mm -hmm. copy, blah, blah, and it's just like, oh, you just be, you just be, it becomes a, like a cubicle type job. And again, I don't think teachers are bad people. I think they just, this, this, the system kind of makes them fall into line they're still connecting with kids. There's still so many awesome teachers out there that are, that are, you know, being really sweet to kids when they need it. And kid comes and is having a tough time. They'll talk them through it and stuff. But I do feel like they're shackled by that, those standards. Yeah. Yeah. And like you said, you know, that's one of the reasons that they get pushed out, you know, the ones who are creative and who do want to, you know, that's why they got into it, you know, and obviously I am, very elementary age folk, like that is my experience. Um, I haven't worked in a high school. I subbed once in a high school and told them never to call me again because the yeah. freshmen were just ridiculous. You know, so my, I really get like caught up in this whole testing thing because it's very prevalent in elementary age because it starts so early and there's like four different tests in a year and you know, things like that. But it seems to be that at the high school level, it's a similar issue. Yeah, I guess here's the thing with testing though, and what do you think, like, how do we 
how do we tell who is a good teacher and how do we tell if a kid is you know, doing well? Like, I mean, it's good for a kid to know how to read, right? And I mean, of course, you know, so, but I don't know. I think it's just, it's just stuff that's hard to measure. A good teacher, like that's hard to measure. You know, a, a kid who's going to be successful, like look at whoever is successful, whatever. And how are you even going to measure what success? Is that monetary mm -hmm. success? Is that like you a feeling of self-satisfaction? Is that like, you know, I, that's, it, it, we're in this industry that's so hard to measure. It's, it's, there's a lot of intangibles there. And I think that's why the system is what it is. It's like, this is the best that they can come up with because it is trickier. It's trickier than like in business. It's like, does mm -hmm. it sell? Then it's a good product. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, and that's what they tried to do with charter schools, which I don't think is successful because it's not the same thing you know like you can look at markets but then when it comes to closing down that school i mean that's a really hard decision to make especially because those kids are likely from a you know live a transient in a transient environment to begin with where things are changing nothing is stable so then what you're gonna close down the school because it's failing i mean that sounds like a good idea in theory because you don't want kids going to bad schools but it's not that simple yeah it's and also i mean you know, that's some of the, one of the things I see being at uh, a school that has like a wealthier population is the the money is there that if the product is good or the teacher's good, then they'll, then they'll keep them there. They'll keep them happy. Like if you want to do something kind of cool and creative, the budget's there. It's like, again, if you are selling a product, you kind of aim that product at, at whatever your, your target demographic is. But most families don't have money to spend on that or whether it's a priority or just like maybe because it's, you know, just um, mandatory that you have to go to school so they don't have to work that into their budget. In their, their monthly budget, there's no like school element of that for most families. So it's, it's almost like private prisons. It's like, you know, how, like your, your customer doesn't have money. So what is the, what kind of, how good of a quality product can it be? And so the money, what comes through government funding and taxes, mm -hmm. that's mm -hmm. one way, but then you gotta do it with the government bureaucracy. It's like, it's a, mess. Well, kind of to go back, because I do think, you know, when I talk about when I, you know, bemoan standardized testing, people assume that I don't think students should be assessed, which is not the case. Um, it's more, you know, the way it's set up. And like you said, what are we trying to measure here? Like, what is the end goal? But you work in a private school currently. So if not standardized tests that you would find in a traditional public school or charter school, like what does the private school do? Or at least the one you work at. To just see if people are like up to. Yeah. Yeah. If they're learning what, you know, they should be learning from your class. Well, there's the thing is like the kids who are in those environments. So it could be like a religious um, uh, private school like I'm at, or it could be just a private school. Like in LA, there's a big one called Harvard Westlake. The truth is, is when, by the time you get there, you're, you're probably from a family that is literate at the very least that um, is, if they're not there for you, they have staff or nannies or whoever that are, that are there for you to help you with your homework. They have tutors. I mean, I, you know, I know students that have um, SAT tutors that are, it's $300 an hour. SAT tutor. They have just so many resources that it's, it's almost impossible for a kid to not find success. Even kids with severe learning disabilities they find success because there's so many people around them to kind of walk them through the process and 
help them to find something that they're passionate about. So maybe they just love photography then. So they're going to get them a good DSLR camera and get them out there to take pictures and all that kind of stuff. Like there's just so much support. There's just community support. And again, because the resources are there, because the money's there. So I, there, there isn't like to answer your question, there isn't like a formal standard way of, of assessing like, can this person read or write? They do. And it's a very one-on-one -on -one individual basis. So like if they're really struggling with reading, they have you know, reading tutors and reading aids and stuff like that right there with them to just walk them through it. You know? And are and those then, a part of the yeah. school? Sorry. Yeah. So they're the, some of them are a part of the school. And then a lot of them are supplemental. Like the, the families just pay for that. You know, I mean, if you have the resources, every single family that I've ever, you know, interacted with or taught their, their kids, if they had the resources, they would get several tutors and several aides and everyone to help them. If they, if they just could, you know, if it was just available for them and they can take it, like, why not? You know, it's either not a priority because, you know, resources are limited or they don't know that those things even exist because they've never had them. They, none of their friends or, you know, their neighbors have tutors or things like that. There isn't like a standard way that there was when I was at the, the, the public schools, the public charters or the regular school. And then there, there's going to be the SATs, you know, I mean, at the end of the day and, and how they do on that. Wow. That makes it sound a little hopeless <laughs> that something like that could be, you know, translated into not just in a traditional public school or charter school, but to serve in a way that would serve students that don't have access to those resources. So is there anything, like any element of the private school that you work for in particular, or you know, private schools in general, that you think could shift, you know, ideas that could be adopted in other models? Yeah, but you know, I had someone on my podcast talk about just violence in America once, and, and we were talking about a whole bunch of different things that can cut down on violence in different communities and things. But at the end of the day, it's the community, it's, it's the family unit and stuff. So like what could happen is you have parents show up to parent-teacher conferences. You have parents, you know, read to their kids at night. You have, you know, role, you have parents and uncles and family members and friends who model critical thinking. And there's too much too much of this is falling on the, the, the teachers and the schools that it's our responsibility to get these kids up to par. And they're behind. A lot of the kids that, that we're talking about now are behind the kids at the rich private schools. So they're going to have to work harder to get just to where they're at, to where, to where you know, those kids are at. And you just, you need to run faster, so to speak. I think that what happens that I'm seeing now at the school I'm at is just there's just a community that just envelops these kids of just like love and support and you know like working hard and their parents work hard and all that kind of stuff. Very rarely do I see like a parent who goes out on disability every couple of months to collect the check, but that was like the the number one career at the schools I've been at before were just like being on unemployment is like the, the job. What message does that send over and over again? It's just, it's that, that cycle. And that's not up to us. You know, mm -hmm. that's the thing is like, we can control what we can control. So it sounds hopeless. I think we maybe just need to like zoom out a little bit and focus more on, on the priorities because there are kids who are in those, like even when I was at the Bill and Melinda Gates school, that was a really tough school. There were kids who had good families 
they got out, they left that community in their rear view. They went out, they went to college, they have a job, they're doing well. Like you can get out. This, the, the idea that if you're born in this, in this bad environment that you're just stuck there, no. But if you're in a community where you have a bad family unit and you have you know, irresponsible friends and family and all that kind of stuff, then, then it gets pretty, pretty desperate. But if you put, take a, a good family unit and you, whatever that looks like, you know, it could be a single mom for sure. It could be like whatever that looks like and put them in there keep their kids on the straight on the straight uh, straight path they'll they'll get out i've seen it these kids are naturally some of them are just brilliant just like hood geniuses that just they they turn it into something they get really good at whatever skating or or sometimes in like crime or something like that but they're really really smart i, I have so many you know memories of these kids who are just brilliant i was like you should be going to google and working as an engineer but they're not they're just like selling weed or something like that so they, they have the capability. Like anyone who says that like kids from the hood like aren't smart is just doesn't have interaction with them because that's not what it is. It's just they don't have the, the community. The schools are uh, their, their you know, neighborhood is uh, their family is like uh, or the family is just overwhelmed because they're working a bunch of jobs. Sorry, that's a lot, but I think that's no. essentially what I what I see the difference. Just to go to the point of, you know, kids not being smart in, you know, neighborhoods that are struggling, I'm like, give me a break. These kids could survive better than most adults I know. Yeah, the idea of the community and the family is something I align with too because, you know, schools can only do so much. So it's kind of like if I give you all of the information I have, because that's one of the arguments is if parents don't have the information that they need, how are they going to make the right decisions? I'm like, okay, well then we give them all of the information we need and they're partners in this. Like it's their job too. We only have them for so long, but then that gets tricky because people will argue against requiring parent involvement or you know asking too much of parents but we know that 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 works we know that the school can only do so much we know that it is the primary primarily the responsibility of the parents to help their child advance and you know do better than they did yeah i mean i see that even now because even at the school i'm at like there are kids who are really bad spellers and I've heard the English department just like get a lot of crap for that. Like, why are these kids such bad spellers? And they're like, I don't, I have them for three hours a week. What are you talking about? Like if they're, if, if a parent is really mad because their kid is a bad speller, it's like, get them reading more, sit them down and have them write more. Like, yeah, like this has to be a shared thing. We're talking about growing your child into someone who has all the tools available to go out and, you know, do whatever they want with their life. And there's nothing more important. That's what being a parent is. But yeah, I mean, I have a five-year-old and like he's in TK now, like transition kindergarten. It's like, there's some element where it's just like, oh, he's at school now, not my responsibility. <laughs> okay. I still do that, but now he's home for homeschool. And it's like, oh, okay, now <laughs> do this. So we're doing all kinds of math and we're doing English. And it's like, oh, this is really tedious. So I'm not an elementary person. And I was like, all right, but this is, yeah, this is what I signed up for, right? Like this is, mm -hmm. this is what being a parent is. And I think that, yeah, I think that goes back to about compulsory school and, and all of that. I guess maybe if schools, if we're gonna like try and create like the model school, like what if it just has like real elements of community in just baked into it? You know, whether it has like, a, you know, like 
cookouts or events or whatever it is just there has to be some sort of thing where it feels like a community because that's what i i feel at the um the private school i'm at now is it is a community there's teachers doing their thing there's parents doing their thing there's the kid who has their own responsibility i wonder what that would look like on like a big public level i don't know yeah there is um it's unfortunately hit hard times um, in the past decade or whatever, but there's a school called Rough Rock Community School on the Navajo Nation, and it was the first native controlled public school. And their, their idea was one, our kids have to go to school. Like, you know, you know, basically kids were being picked up from their home and taken to school. And that's, there's a lack of jobs in the Navajo Nation. So they kind of thought about that and they want, so our kids have to go to school, but we want them to get the cultural knowledge that they need as well. You know, what it means to be Navajo and carrying that on and we need jobs. So they started hiring community, people from the community to be the aides in classes or to, you know, work in the office, things like that. They were very intentional about that. So I think that's one way. Now, of course, what ended up hampering it was accountability standards started coming, you know, so it got harder for them to teach culture and things of that nature. They had to be more aligned with what was expected of teachers. You know, they had to be licensed and things like that. But the school even kind of helped parents get to that point where they were also licensed. Um, you know, so that's kind of one way to think about how do you bring a community in? Well, yeah. you be intentional about who you hire. Yeah, I had um, Todd Nesloni on my podcast. He's like a social media, you know, influential teacher guy. And he was a, he's in Texas and he went into a, like a real challenging neighborhood. He had like a, like a cookout and he just, just cause he wanted to get, especially um, it was like, it was called like a, like a male role model or something like that cookout. So it was, he wanted like uncles, dads, grandfathers, you know, family, friends, coaches to come. And he, he said like, so he had to organize it. So he got a whole bunch of hot dogs and he got the, you know, the tables and like put it out there and and the first time he did it, like two people showed up, you know, and they just stuck with it, did it again. Then more people showed up, more people showed up. And that's, and like, I think that's what it, what it takes is to, to do something like that. But you have to get the people like him who are willing to just like, all right, I'm going to invest tons and tons of hours into this because it's probably the way, the way to get which, where you want to go. It's, I mean, we're kind of in a society where if you can not work more, <laughs> not work more. Yeah, but I, that's a good point is if you want parents to get involved or community members to get involved, you have to show them that you value them. And that takes a lot of time, especially if the parent didn't enjoy school um, or, you know, isn't as bought into the idea. They just send their kids because they're supposed to. Um, yeah, it takes a lot of work, but it's almost like, well, that's what you signed up for. So maybe that's something that we should be talking to you know, pre-service teachers about a little bit more. Yeah, how much, I mean, just like on your end, it's been a while since I was at like a college of ed, like how much is talked about the families at home and like how to interact with them, how to talk to them, how to bring them in? Not long, I would right? say not, not a lot or not at all. I, my guess is it depends on who your instructor is. If they value, if they, you know, think it's important to tell pre-service teachers about that, then they do. But if they don't value it, it's not like baked into any class for sure. And often what ends up happening is there's a lot of excuses made for parents. So, you know, for teachers who are more getting into it because they're more social justice minded, it's like, you know, well, these parents are struggling. They have to work three jobs, whatever. You know, it's almost like 
we don't, you shouldn't be requiring too much of them because they have a lot on your, their plate, which is, it gets very patronizing the way this kind of talked about. Yeah, it's, it's lowering, the, lowering the standards because it's like, again, there's so many that do it and it doesn't, it doesn't divide down racial lines, socioeconomic lines. It's just some people do it. There are, I mean, there are so many parents that I've had come in who like the mom is, you know, wearing her diner outfit because she's just coming from, you know, she's missing, missing a shift, but she's like, I'm not going to miss my kids my kids, uh, you know, uh, parent-teacher conference. Are you crazy? Of course. Like, what's he learning? What's he going on? What can I do? And it's like, oh, your kid will be fine. I know that you're, you're struggling right now and blah, 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 blah. But like, your kid will be fine. And it's really cool, too, is to have those interactions with the parents. And like, because a lot of teachers come in and they're like college educated and they're all the stuff. And so if they go into the hood, it's like, it, it's almost like the great white hope. And what, uh, one of the things that I always did, because I was always kind of like, fascinated by you know different people different kind of communities and stuff like that so I'd always just like ask questions about and be really genuinely curious about them and like talk to the parents a little bit and try to relate to them and like and like get to know kind of a little bit about them and ask them questions like and not like an assessment just because I'm curious and I feel like I could learn from them you know and and, I, and that seemed to resonate well is like they're not coming in to just like learn, like, let me teach you. I'm the college educated one. You didn't go to uh -huh. college, let me talk to you. I'm smarter than you. Cause this person is smarter than me in so many ways and things that they've experienced and things that they, you know, the way that they see things, what they value. And then once they see that there's like a mutual respect, like I respect them and they're, they're kind of like their situation or whatever it is, who they are, then, then they're like, oh, okay. Then, you know, Mr. Roosh isn't so bad. I mean, I think, you know, if you're showing someone that you or a parent, you know, that you respect them and value their opinion over and over and over again, then they become that partner. What would your advice be to a decision maker, someone who's like, say they're building a new school from scratch? Like what would be some of your recommendations from your experience of how to create that model? I, I love the concept of like, let's change what schools look like. You know, it's just an antiquated system that's just corrupted by a lot of things and politics and things like that like well, yeah what does a great a good school look like what we're talking about so how does it connect to the community at large so do you do you use mathematics and art class to go you know revitalize the, the the public park you know something like that what problems are in the community and can you use the school to solve those problems you know something like that like like doesn't have to be theoretical what problems does your community have okay and then how can the school be used to fix that? So it could be from grant writing or design or whatever. whatever it could be all these kinds of things. Like that'll hit, you know, several birds with one stone, right? It's, it's getting back to what we discussed with making um, school useful. It's connecting to the community. It's, you know, it's a lot of things. It's, you know, if you, if you do something that would normally cost money, then there's probably some, some financial gain to that. So I think make it so it's it's not just a school that you go to from seven to three. It's a part of the community. It's a day to day, all the time, volunteers, teachers, everyone's all in it kind of together. And I don't know exactly what that looks like, but I think that would be a really cool base to, to grow from. Yeah. And it gets to my interest in kind of school is local. Like it's in the local community. It should be serving the local community. It's not, you know. We're, it's such, this is such a big country. Like we cannot expect 
all schools to be exactly the same. Like it's so diverse by region, by city, rural versus urban. Yeah. So this idea of local and how do you use or not use, but leverage a school to um, create a thriving community. Yeah. I mean, it was never, I mean, it's not in the constitution. It's not intended to be a national thing because yeah, I mean, teaching in Iowa and then teaching in South Central LA. And I don't even know if the kids should know the same thing. Yes, they should know how to read and write. But beyond that, like there's a whole different skill set. So yeah, I, I'm with you on that. Like have it be local. And then they have these all these little labs all around the, the country. And they're all kind of doing their own thing. And they can, with technology, you can share. You can have the, the school in Iowa teach something to the kids in South Central. And then vice versa. You can use tech to, to have like cross- you know, kids get to know people who are very different from them. And then, and then the community can grow to eventually maybe be something on a national level, but it will happen more organically where it's not just people in DC or in the capital, you know, mandating, here's what you do. It happens kind of naturally with like everyone. Hey, hey, you know what? Iowa thinks we should do this. So does this, so does Florida. They come together and then they could Go and lobby for something in Washington. That'd be a cool way to to even get it to the federal level for people that think it should be. Like, let's have it get there. Mm -hmm. Let's not have it, like, start there. Yeah, and even if it doesn't end up, like, you know, different localities can contribute to this bigger idea of the United States because they know different things. They have different skill sets that they can contribute. Diverse. Yeah, that's what we advocate for, right? (laughs) Then why are we trying to make it all look the same? Interesting. Okay, so to close out, do you have any kind of big vision for education or anything, you know, that you're Um, working on? I'm running in a vague direction. I have like an aim about making school better. That's what we're doing with um, the group and we're trying to grow that group, mm-hmm. but it, that's an uphill battle. Just trying to get, you know, the better ideas, uh, the best ideas in education. I don't know. I think we're, we're, I think just more of having these conversations and encouraging educators and educational advocates and, you know, every, everybody who, who is interested in this to engage and let's, there's just the, the conversations aren't happening. I'm so glad you're doing a, a podcast thing. Like the, these conversations just need to happen over and over and over again. So we start questioning basic things about school, but school is very important to a society. And yet it seems like it's just an afterthought, but it gets a lot of, you know, like a um, mouse service. It gets a lot of like, oh, teachers are amazing. They're such heroes. They're the best and blah, 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 blah. But when it comes down to like, all right, well, will you help with this? Or can you do this? It's like, well, no. Like, it's, it's, it feels very just like, it's all just, was oh, lip service. Yeah, it's just, it's just all just like saying, saying the right things because teachers are the heroes. So, of course, they're wonderful. Pay them a lot. Pay them like a professional athlete. But like, it's going to take work. It's going to take conversations. It's going to be hard. And I think that just the more that we can have those conversations, that's kind of all I'm, I'm working toward right now until it gets better, pretty pixelated, whatever like, we're working. Yes, we have an uphill battle, but I'm glad, you know, there's people like you and everyone else who's, you know, trying to get involved in this. Yeah, so to close out, is there any, can you, do you want to tell people where to find you? Yeah, um, I am trying to grow. This is so weird for me and comfortable. I feel like your dog right now, I'm like, eh, eh. But, um, <laughs> it's like, I'm, I'm on social media, which is weird for me because I'm kind of an introverted person, but I, I want more, this sounds so corny, like I want more followers and I want more um, views on my podcast. 
because I don't want to be famous. If someone else was doing all of this stuff, I would just attach my trailer to their, their tractor. Like I would gladly do that. Which is why like when you're like, hey, you want to come my podcast? Yeah, <laughs> yes. No, I don't have to do this, sure. But very few are, as you and I both know. Like, and that's why when when um we kind of like both you were already a part of Heterox Academy and you're like, hey, I want to be a part of this. It's like, yeah, yes, yes, of course. Like, yeah, here, you want to answer these emails? Go, you say it. Because <laughs> it's it's a lot of work and and like, but I still want a lot of followers on Instagram because my why is very clear. It's to bring more people into the conversation, test out my ideas about good education and putting ideas out there. And then people can say this is a bad idea or it's a good idea. And we can just start these conversations. So I don't want to be Insta famous. It's not why I have a podcast. It's not why I have social media. I'm doing it to try and facilitate conversations. So yeah, so it's, it's my name. It's Will Roosh, W-I-L-L-R-E-U-S-C-H. And it's Cylinder Radio. And, you know, reviews on Apple Podcasts and stuff like that go a long way because this is a, a game where you need, you know, you need some sort of like attention and, mm-hmm. and the more views you have and the more interaction you have on social media and podcasting, then the more people will come on to, to, to talk to with you. And then you get more people who have more resources and more influence and then more influence and more money and resources. And then when you start getting these good ideas that we're trying to develop in conversations like this, we can go somewhere with that. You know, so it's, it's a frustrating thing when I hear that young people today, the number one thing they want to be when they grow up is famous. Like, why? Like, why do you want to be famous? Mm-hmm. And they don't have an answer for that. But like, I don't want to be famous, but I want like me or, or our Heterox Academy group, I want it to have thousands or millions of people engaging with it because then we can get somewhere with all of those resources, people and money and influence, then we can actually make some change. So if you want to make change, you have to be influential. And it's just mm-hmm. like, it's, I feel like so many people are backwards today and they're, they're trying to get the the influence and they don't know what they're going to do, how they're going to influence mm-hmm. people. Yeah. What will so you that, be remembered I, for? Yeah. That's my, that's my pitch. It's just, it's very uncomfortable for me to say <laughs> a lot of followers on Instagram because it sounds terrible, you know, but. Yeah. Well, you just basically explain the pros and cons of social media. So, you know, we aim to use it to get people more involved in these conversations because it needs to happen. And I think with the, you know, isolation that's been going on, schools being closed, you know, hopefully something good will come out of that and a perspective will be developed of like what actually matters, like for kids to be thriving and, and whatnot. So we shall see. Absolutely. Cool. Well, I'm glad well, you're doing it. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on. And um, I'm sure maybe one day you'll be back soon. And if not, people can find us on the Heterodox Academy K through 12 HX community. Go to the website, join our group and continue these conversations with us. All right. Thanks, Will. All right. See ya.